This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome everyone to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. Now this time from my living room, not Las Vegas. Maybe not as exciting. Definitely less hugs. On this episode, I'd like to do something a little different. Not going to read emails to you, but at least kind of the questions and subjects from uh, emails sent in asking for uh, advice or thoughts or whatever. And uh, I've sent emails back uh, to these people, but I thought it'd be interesting to just kind of talk about uh, on the air, if you will. But before I get to that, let's take a minute or two here to thank our sponsor, Napa Autotech Training. Are you tired of searching for trained technicians? If so, let Napa Autotech help you build a technician with their Build-A-Tech program, kind of like Build-A-Bear. These three-day courses cover one of four individual topics, brakes, electrical, steering and suspension, or HVAC through a combination of classroom lecture, hands-on, and utilizing training mock-ups. Visit NapaAutotech.com. Okay, so I, I guess I, I don't know how to really say it. I'm very humbled when uh, people send emails, and I, I'm happy that they do. It means a lot that they made uh, trust trust me with information or trust that I have something worth advice worth taking, I guess. I don't really plan on reading the, the emails outright, but to really just kind of get to the nitty gritty on them. This one's asking about what are my thoughts on hiring bonuses for new techs and that for many of the veterans in the back, it's viewed as wildly unfair. How do I feel about that? What would we do like, you know, for the shop I'm at? Uh, would we include hiring bonuses? Maybe how the guys out back would would feel about that. And then alternatives to hiring bonuses or what we could do to make them more palatable. Like, I get it. There's no way around it. Like, if you're a manager and, yeah, you're trying to recruit talent to work in the shop, regardless of position, really, I guess we're focusing on techs here. Lots of places are offering hiring bonuses. So now you're kind of forced to consider handing out hiring bonuses and advertising it. And yet you presumably have a group of techs you know, however big that is, I guess, one tech to however many, maybe viewing this as they're kind of getting the raw end of the deal where they're they're already there. They're hopefully producing, working hard, and yet hire the new guy or new tech, new gal, new girl into a position where their pay rate might be rival to theirs. And oh, by the way, they got a, a bonus check out of the deal too. And I, I sympathize you know, uh, I remember my mom when she, you know, before we were born, my siblings and I, long before we were born, uh, she was a nurse. Some of the uh, veteran nurses were not so happy when, you know, the, the candy stripers or the newbies, if you will, show up and their starting rate was higher than the veteran starting rate. And then the way pay increases worked Eventually, the young people, the newbies, were making more than the veterans, which I couldn't wrap my head around like that. That actually worked. People didn't quit on the spot. I don't know. Maybe it's just different times, stuff like that. It's not like there's a bunch of different hospitals to choose from uh, in Red Wing. So 
they stuck around. Not so much with auto repair shops. Usually there's many, many, many uh, in the vicinity. It's pretty rare to have the uh, one shop isolated. And if they were, the chances are they really going to be a, a really big shop. I mean, it very well could be, but you know, a lot of times they're on the smaller side. To me, this is more symptomatic of, in my mind, a broken system of compensation. You know, we have multiple different ways of compensating people, right? I mean, there's on one end straight hourly, on the other end straight flat rate, and then a bunch of variations in the middle. For the most part, for the most part, technicians are rewarded for production, for hours turned or parts sold or both. When that's the focus, getting somebody else in the shop doesn't necessarily help them. In some cases, it hurts them. Now, in my experience, I only hear about this at the dealership level, and it's not to dump on dealerships, but I'm more familiar with dealerships that pay flat rate, either pure flat rate or a variation of it. And what happens is the shop's busy, the techs are turning big hours, getting big checks, and then they start trying to hire more and more people. And now it's a struggle to break whatever uh, the threshold to get into the higher pay bracket. You know what I mean? Like they might have a, a guarantee of 25 hours. And if they break 30 hours, they get, you know, an extra dollar an hour. And if they break $40 and an extra $2 an hour, and it works something of that nature, right? Don't quote me on the actual numbers, but it, some variation of that. And if they get too many texts in there, it dilutes the labor pool and therefore they can't hit the big numbers. And it just causes strife and angst and uh, resentment. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, but then again, I don't run a dealership, so I can't imagine it's much different than any other shop. You know, evidently they know better what they're doing than I do. In our shop, the techs are paid a base hourly rate. So if you're there, you're getting paid through research and interacting with them is a, a decent hourly rate that they can live off of. And then everybody, not just the techs, everybody gets a profit sharing bonus provided we pr were profitable of varying sizes based strictly on profit. So the shop has a monthly nut, you know, whatever that number is that we have to profit. We have to profit X amount of dollars just to break even. And then there's a bit of a cushion above that. And then everybody gets a small piece of that profit pie, if you will. For us, and I can really only speak to us, that's changed everything. And now if we bring in somebody else, they're kind of rewarded for it, especially if this person is skillful or can produce or somehow bring profit, ethical profit. I can't stress this enough. In meetings, we talk about ethical profit. If you're going to gouge people to try to get a, get a better paycheck, uh, I will give you all a small permanent pay raise and the profit sharing is gone. We're all about doing what needs to be done, doing the right thing, doing right by people, having ethics, which I know if you listen to this very often, you hear me say ethics and economics are really not 
they really don't necessarily go in the same sentence when it comes really down to it. But in our shop, we have to maintain ethics. It's got to be ethical profit. Therefore, if somebody comes in and they can produce or they can help us become more profitable, everybody benefits. Everybody benefits. If it came down to it where we are hiring uh, or offering hiring bonuses, I believe, and we haven't had to do it yet, you know, in what few discussions I've had, and we really haven't gotten to the point where we're going to offer hiring bonuses, they would be okay with it. Because it's, again, the long term is everybody benefits. That would be of great benefit to them, not only just financially, but also workload. And uh, maybe somebody will, we can bring somebody in that works in a service area or uh, area of repair that they don't feel as comfortable doing or don't want to do. So there is that. So what I mean by symptomatic of it is, as management, are you explaining to your staff, how does this help me long-term? How does it help them long-term? And as an employee, as a tech or service advisor, whatever, look beyond just the immediate, the pay, what is the long-term? If it benefits the shop, it should benefit everybody. That's the way it should work. Now, should's a dangerous, dangerous word. But if the shop's doing better, if the shop's making more money, if the shop's more profitable, again, I don't know a whole lot of shop owners and managers that are just absolutely killing it and their techs are struggling. Maybe there are some, maybe some of you guys listening, you can name two, three, four right off the bat. I don't know. I feel like I know quite a few different shop owners and managers and techs and Truthfully, I cannot think of any of them. I know some shop owners that are doing extremely well for themselves. Nice houses, cabins, nice vehicles, beautiful shops. And as far as I know from the techs that I talk to that work there, they're well taken care of as well. So uh, I think it's symptomatic of either mismanagement of how uh, we're compensated, that the uh, focus is too narrow all possibility, adding more staff could hurt those techs' paychecks. And that's got to be acknowledged and dealt with. Also, just communication, making people aware of how this helps them. Honestly, when you're thinking about this and you're upset about it as an employee, honestly, at some point, you're going to have to talk to management, the owner. And I would highly recommend trying not to go in there uh, all revved up. Uh, to try to be very calm and matter of fact. And maybe then they'll realize this is a legitimate issue or they'll realize they've never really explained it and whether they felt they should have to or not is going to be an individual basis, I'm sure. But hopefully they recognize this as, oh, they're coming to me with a problem. They're giving me a chance to address it and addressing it, maybe explaining it or fixing it, working together to come up with a solution. For 98 years, the Napa name has meant quality parts and service. It also reflects top quality training programs to help you build a more successful vehicle repair business. No doubt, the technician shortage is impacting everyone, but you're not facing this battle alone. Napa has the solution by making Napa Auto Tech training available near you. 
Napa Auto Tech provides automotive aftermarket technicians career development opportunities through structured, disciplined, measured, and high-quality technical instruction, no matter the technician or service advisor's skill level. This instruction enhances understanding of vehicle systems, increases first-time repair capability, and overall customer satisfaction. It also prepares technicians to become ASE certified. It's a fact technicians who receive training to improve their knowledge and skills have a higher sense of job satisfaction. This reduces technician turnover and increases productivity, directly improving a shop's profitability. It is vital to the success of a shop's business that today's technicians are equipped to diagnose and repair today's complex vehicles. With our ever-changing technology, the technician's knowledge and skills need to be updated and refreshed on a regular basis. As you labor over the decision of whether to send your techs to get their skills sharpened, keep in mind, Napa Auto Tech Training is an investment, not an expense, and it's available to all. Much of Napa Auto Tech's training is offered in more than one format to accommodate varieties of learning styles and training preferences so each person can maximize their learning. Whether you're more of a hands-on person or enjoy learning at your own pace, Napa Auto Tech is here to provide you with the training you need and the format that works best for you. To learn more about what Napa Auto Tech offers, contact NapaAutoTech.com. Okay, another one is, has been working at a shop for quite some time, almost 20 years. And lately, the last, you know, three, four years, their incomes have been going up. And I don't know if that means they're paid hourly. I'm, I'm guessing it's hourly or maybe some sort of a production bonus is going on, but they've been bought out. And the new owner, if you will, and it sounds like it may be corporate, wants to put everybody on flat rate. What they're explaining is, is they write all their own service, order all their own parts, and now they're going to be going on flat rate. This is where flat rate gets a really, really, really bad name. Unless, unless the dollar per hour is extremely high, offsetting the actual number of hours, if that makes sense, where you know, a lot of times flat rate's all about billing hours over whatever that number may be, X, uh, over 30 hours a week, 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week. I, you hear so many different numbers, it's hard to know, like, what's a good baseline. You know what I mean? I, I know plenty of shops that are ecstatic, ecstatic if techs are turning 30 hours a week. I know other shops that if the techs aren't doing 50 to 60, they might not have a job. So I don't know. What I do know is if this is set up the way we're used to hearing about flat rate, you really don't start making money until you're billing over X amount of hours. And we'll just, we'll say 40, just for the sake of conversation. If you're not breaking 40 every week, your paychecks are not going to be so great. And if you're writing your own service, ordering your own parts, that to me is a system not set up uh, in a way to help you succeed. You know, I can see sometimes some benefits to uh, techs looking up parts simply to make sure they get the right ones. In general, it takes a lot of time to write up your own invoices or repair orders or estimates, ordering parts, searching around, looking for parts. To me, doesn't allow the technician to focus on that which they're being rewarded for, which is production. And if you're being rewarded for production, Logic states that they would be on cars doing some service work as much as possible. Very much like uh, the episode with the zero turn mower, right? Why is the zero turn mower cut down on um, mowing times? 
because the blade, the the actual cutting blade, mower blade to blade contact, grass blade percentage is much higher. And I don't mean like percentage is taking off the lawn. I mean, the contact with uncut grass is a higher percentage than maybe like a regular lawn tractor. The same with flat rate. If you're not doing work on the car, you're not necessarily billing hours. And therefore, any time away from doing that is hurting the technician's paycheck, hurting the shop's profitability. It doesn't make sense. So it doesn't sound like they have a very good system set up in place to help everyone succeed, which is, I mean, man, that's the first job of management, right? To give everyone the best opportunity to succeed, whether that's processes, work environment, and it shouldn't even be or, it's all the above. Training, tooling, what do we need to make everyone as efficient as possible? And then if you're really efficient and we can keep the cars coming in, you're going to be very productive. Uh, So I'm fearful about this situation. It sounds like listening to episode 107 with Brian Pollock is really what spurned this uh, email, I believe, because he mentions how much time he has at this establishment, how long he's been there. And we kind of have this sunk cost fallacy, uh, potential sunk cost fallacy going on. Very hesitant to leave because so much time has been spent there. But if this if they're coming in and they're going to change your pay plan on short notice with no systems in place to help everyone make a smooth transition and then benefit from it, you know, take the benefits of flat rate, uh, kind of that meritocracy of it, you have to be prepared to leave. Well, I don't know what else you're going to do. What do you, you want to suffer through that? Unless there's a some long-term light at the end of the tunnel there I don't know about you're going to have to be ready to go. You're going to have to start working on plan B, C, D, E, F, G so that um, if you go into the office and kind of ask for, uh, ask some questions about how things are going to be handled and if things are looking bad that you may have to go, that if they just tell you to pack up and go, that you have somewhere to go. kind of hate to see that. I hope we're all wrong and that they do have systems in place and have a plan so that this plan goes over smoothly. Maybe it isn't pure flat rate. Maybe it's there's some guarantees involved and uh, it isn't as bad as it sounds, at least at face value. So I, I hope that works out well. And then I got another one here. What books do I recommend reading? Uh, I'm assuming this is really about um, auto repair. There's some days I think people should maybe check out a dictionary. Uh, not this guy. He has excellent spelling or uses Grammarly. When we're talking about auto repair and books, really specifically, I think when people ask me, and I could be full of it, if if I'm going about this the wrong way, please uh, reach out to me and correct me. I think we're usually thinking like drivability, electrical, electronics. I don't know how you can't bring up John Haywood, the MIT instructor, professor, researcher, and his book, which I, you know, I think it gets referred to as kind of the Bible. And uh, it would be really hard to argue that the internal combustion engines fundamentals, 
there's a new one out. The originally, you know, of course you have the first edition. There's a second edition out. You're looking at a hundred and some odd dollars, probably 120, 130. You can get it digital and, or you can get the paper. The digital book is about the same price as the hardcover paper book. I like the book in my hand. However, I really like digital for searching. So I have both. One, you know, to page through, to look through it. I, I guess I tend to like looking at it better than a tablet or a phone. Uh, of course, the pages are bigger and the diagrams really more so than the words are bigger. It's an engineering book. That's all there is to it. It's going into engineering speak. There's equations in there that may or may not make sense. It doesn't, it really doesn't matter. What there is, is a lot of information about how things really work. What is really going on inside of an engine? Off the cuff and not to go on to some long tangent, but the four stroke cycle gets broken down. You know, we have the intake or inlet stroke, the compression stroke, and then instead of calling it the, uh, power stroke, which they may, it's usually called the expansion stroke, but towards the bottom, you know, as that piston starting to travel down and depending on cam or valve timing of this next phase occurs called blow down. That's not something we really hear much about. When people don't talk about that blow down, what's blow down really good example of blow down is listening to a race car. Like I'm, I'm not talking so much uh, F1 or, you know, if you're out in Vegas or Indy, but really like hot rods, drag racing cars, dragsters, that pop, that exhaust pop, the loud exhaust pop, that's blowdown. That's the exhaust valve opening long and long's relative, long before the piston reaches bottom dead center. And a lot of that um, expanding gas escapes just shoots out of the exhaust valve out the you know headers or manifolds whatever because as the piston comes around on bottom dead center and starts going back up on the exhaust stroke they want as much of that pressure out of the cylinder as they possibly can get because if it comes around and there's still gas is expanding now you have the exhaust stroke going up against and using energy more energy we should say we got to, to be more technical. It's got to be more energy to go back up because it's now got to push this expanding gas out. Kind of makes sense. Something we'd never heard about. I've never been in a college class or tech college class or, I mean, even some professional level classes where they talk that way. You know, it's suck, squeeze, bang, blow. That's what we'd learn. And a lot of cars have been fixed with suck, squeeze, bang, blow, right? That book... I would buy it whichever way you prefer, but honestly, I, there's a lot of logic to buying it, both digital and hardcover. You know, I guess I wasn't thinking about a list here, uh, like a number. I don't, I wouldn't put a number on it, but it would be very difficult for me to not recommend uh, heavily Paul Danner's book, Scanner Danner's book. You can get it at, I think, right from Paul or AES Wave. I think he's got an ebook version too. Now I got the printed version. I think it's like a hundred bucks, but it's, it's really good. It's really good. I, I highly recommend it. Paul, Paul did a really good job with it. 
a lot of us already have it, but if you don't, that's right up there. Much different, much more, um, how should you say, directly relevant to us. Maybe better yet, it's more uh, applicable to what we do uh, over the Haywood book. Haywood's going to answer a lot of questions that you're not going to find uh, in most of these books that are um, made, really written to us and marketed to us. But uh, Paul Danner, Scanner Danner's book is going to be very, very applicable to what we do uh, day in and day out. And then uh, I think another one, you know, Steckler, Brandon Steckler's Pressure Waveform book's pretty decent. He worked really, really hard on it. It shows it's pretty good. Uh, also, you could get that at AES Wave. Yeah, those are three that really hop out at me. You know, I have a bunch of books, but a lot of them are collections of SAE documents. So like I'll find an SAE document that interests me. And sometimes you can figure out that they release them in a collection and you can buy the book for the same uh, amount of money, like on clearance as just buying the, the paper, the white paper. I mean, it, it might be quite a bit more money. Uh, SAE books can be a little spendy, but a lot of times they come with a hundred white papers. In them. So I think white papers, a lot of them are going for 40, 50 bucks. There's a hundred of them in a book. It could cost you 500 bucks, but they sell the book for 400 or 300. It's a double-edged sword. A lot of nice to know information. Need to know gets kind of, it can get messy because sometimes you can start taking this uh, information and overcomplicating matters because you read a white paper on how something might work or how something really does work and you end up overcomplicating a system or how a system works to diagnose it. And you kind of send yourself down a rabbit hole. Those are some reading material ideas. Another one is building a network. Building a network of, of people. How do you do it? I mean, honestly, I think it's somewhat like, how did you make friends at school? I, I, not to oversimplify it. Social media, in some cases, makes it much easier uh, and harder if that makes sense. So social media makes it so you have access to way more people. You can interact with them potentially. You know, if you make a comment on one of their comments, they might read it. They might not. You don't know. Uh, if they do, there's a uh, a chance to build a rapport. Uh, otherwise, honestly, it really gets down to, I think you start attending trade shows or training expos. Vision is a big one. I uh, just got back from Apex. There's a lot of people there. A lot, a lot of really like industry stalwarts like Scott Mana. There's Scott Mana. And then it's, I mean, it's a big drop down into where uh, the rest of us really rank in the profession. Seriously, there's a lot. There's a lot of people out there worth getting to know. They might be working in a booth uh, for a vendor. Uh, they might be there on behalf of a vendor, but they're really, their day-to-day -day is fixing cars, which is a side note. I can't believe more vendors don't hire technicians that use their equipment in the base to be around the booth. I, I, in some cases, it blows my mind because maybe just a shop owner or manager who isn't in the back, they listen to the pitch or their questions are answered because the Questions are pretty vanilla and the staff 
knows a certain amount of things, maybe what they were trained on, what they were told, what was in their sales uh, flyers and whatever training they got on the sales side of things. But it's much different when you get a somewhat knowledgeable technician walking into that booth and asking very pertinent, uh, very direct questions. And the salespeople often are caught off guard or it's really unfair. It's wildly unfair to them to know the answer. Whereas if they uh, had a tech hired that uses this stuff, they would be able to answer it very genuinely. And I think drastically increase the chance of a, chances of a sale. Uh, I could be full of it. That's just kind of what I saw. It's, it's kind of too bad. Not that everybody has money pouring out of their ears to be hiring techs to uh, stand in a booth. And if they do it for a couple of days, they may not like it so much anymore. <laughs> Fun at first. And then it's work. But going to trade shows, going to training expos, shaking hands, shooting the breeze, you know, hanging out, class breaks, after class, shooting the breeze before class, before class starts. Recognize somebody, start talking to them, you never know. And you just start building these relationships. And even if it isn't like <laughs> walking out of the class, best pals, they equate your name with a face. And now they see you on whatever platform again, Diagnostic Network, Facebook, Reddit, or they see your name and they know you as a person. They may interpret what you say differently now in a much better way. And that leads to whatever it is, a, a friendship. If we want to use the term loosely, they start to become their, your network in your network and exchange phone numbers. Hey, you know, you run into something tough, give me a call or don't hesitate to call me off through messenger or Skype or what, you know, whatever. Text me, message me, instant message me, direct message me. And it's, that's how it starts. You just start meeting people, getting to know people. They get to know you and you just, you start becoming part of a group that, you know, and it might start out with just a couple of you and it starts adding on or your group gets added to another group. Who knows? I mean, it's, I think it's classic human interactions, but the key is really to, I, I think, to kind of really get out there. There are people that I have gotten to know on social media, but not really as good as when I finally met them and they got to meet me and I got to meet them. And then that's when things get, gets a lot more nuanced. Everyone's better for it. Uh, so that's really, that's really how it goes. You know, when I first started networking, if you will, it was at uh, local classes I guess, you know, he kind of built a little bit of a network in school, but after I left college, not everybody stayed fixing cars for whatever reasons. So that network kind of quickly evaporated. And then I didn't have much of a network, maybe some attack here or there at other shops. And then uh, going to classes that were, you know, an hour away or so. You start going a few times, you're shooting the breeze. At break, you're shooting the breeze after class, get to class early, shoot the breeze. Next thing you know, you're kind of looking forward to seeing seeing them and, you know, they got a problem car, they give you a call, you got a problem car, you give them a call. That's really how it started. IATN, I knew a lot of names, didn't see a lot of people. Uh, then I really went, 
uh, I would say the big one, Linder Technical Services. When I went to that, I went to the Guru School, which was a, a one-week, fairly intensive training. Fairly intensive training. Start out with Randy Dillman, and then you got Jim Linder, John Thornton, Doug Garriott. Um, some of these names you might know. Uh, some of them you might not, but you should know these people. Randy Dillman now works for Pico, Pico USA, or for sure, maybe even Pico uh, itself. But uh, he was a uh, br- brilliant technician. I think still is. He's just a brilliant person. Now he works for uh, Pico. He used to work for Linder Tech, kind of as a diagnostician. Went off on his own thing. Uh, worked at another indie shop for a while. And then you have Jim Linder, who created Linder Technical Services, servicing fuel injectors, reconditioning fuel injectors. And then he started putting on classes. First, locally, they would have a, a, a group, a small group that would show up, I think, once a month. And they'd have a problem car that they'd work on together, figuring out, doing a bunch of testing. And then John Thornton. Hopefully you're all familiar with him. If you're not, please try to get familiar as soon as you can. Uh, If there's one reason to go to a training event, forget networking, go to see John. Uh, I kid you not. Uh, If you are unfamiliar, uh, we're talking like Mecca level stuff here. Uh, And I don't really say that sarcastically. Like it should be something to strive for. Go see him in action. Whatever he's teaching, I don't care. If he's teaching on how to resurface a tabletop, go. By all means, go. And I don't think he does classes on that type of stuff. It's uh, diagnostics. And then Doug Garriott ran the injector lab at Linder Technical Services. So we spent a week of various learning about electricity, lab scopes, ignition, fuel injectors, fuel pumps, stuff like that. Got to know you know, it was a small group. They limited the number of uh, attendees, got to know them really well. You're with them for a week. You eat breakfast with them, lunch with them, dinner with them. Very uh, boot camp-esque. He had a training event, a yearly training event. Might be 300 people there. And I started going to those. And that's how I met a lot of people. And then because of people I met through those channels, I end up going to Vision. Because of those people, they helped me get there and gave me the ability to go. I met more people, uh, people whose names I had seen uh, on IATN, either in the forums or on the ch- in the chat room. Now I got to meet them, shake hands with them, hang out a little bit with them. You know, some really, really great friendships were born of that. So I don't know if that's the secret sauce. It's to, to get out there and, and meet people and interact with them and let them get to know you and get to know them. And that's that's networking in a nutshell. And you find that you grow. Some people you grow because of them and some people you grow with them. And, you know, maybe eventually somebody grows because of you. So that would be a real circle of life thing for, uh, you know, that will make Bryn Klein smile, I bet. Those are just a few of the uh, emails I've got. There's a few more here, but it looks like I've been going on here now for quite a while. And I think we'll just wrap this up this time and collect more for a future episode of the mailbag. Don't hesitate to uh, send me an email or reach out to me via messenger. Email is mattfonslowpodcast at gmail.com. Like I said, 
really, really easy to find on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or X, or whatever they're calling it now. Very easy to find. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to the Aftermarket Radio Network for continuing to edit these things in such a way that make me sound somewhat coherent. And thank you to Nap Auto Tech Training for making this all possible. And until next time, take care. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.